Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the blessed name of Jesus. Lord, would you, would you come down today? Would you prepare the hearts of these people that have come today, Lord? They are precious. They, they have immortal souls that will dwell in everlasting happiness or everlasting burnings for all eternity. Lord, it is so important that those that have come today that are unconverted would be awakened. And we pray, Lord, your spirit would awaken them today. I pray that you'd help me not to speak out of the fear of man, Lord, but let me... Let me speak out the fear of God, the fear of Christ. I pray, Lord, that I would not hold back any truth important for your people to know. Lord, we have sought to build this church on being honest about truth and not, and not sugarcoating anything. And so I, I pray, Lord, that that would be true today. I pray that you would convict hearts that are not saved that they would be driven to seek the Savior today. And I pray, Lord, for saints, that they would be ravished with your rescuing love towards them in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read John chapter 3 and verse 16, or quote it if you like. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is our fourth message in the series on John 3.16, the gospel in a nutshell. In our first message, we focused on the words, for God so loved the world. And there we have the motive of salvation. In the next message, we focused on the words that he gave his only son. And there we focused on the gift of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. The motive of salvation, the love of God. The gift of salvation, the son of God. The third message was focused on these words, that whoever believes in him, and there we have the condition of salvation, faith, personal, vibrant, vital faith in Jesus Christ. Today we're going to focus on those words, shall not perish. Three words that are going to be the substance of our message today. They shall not perish. And here we have the danger of missing salvation. This is the danger that every human being faces who misses it, who does not experience salvation. There was a poll taken in 2003, and in this Gallup poll, 64% of those that were polled said that it was either likely or very likely that they were going to heaven. Then they asked them the question, do you think it's likely or very likely that you are going to hell? Less than 1% of the people said that that was true about them. 64% of the population, very likely that I'm going to heaven. Less than 1%, it's very unlikely that I would ever go to hell. But remember what Jesus Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, it's verse 13 and 14. He talked about two different gates, a big wide one. And he said, many people go through that wide gate and it leads where? destruction it's a big wide gate many people going through it leads to destruction there's a th other tiny narrow gate few people go through that gate where does it lead life eternal life 
eternal destruction, eternal life. Many people are pressing into this gate going to eternal destruction, according to Jesus. But very few are pressing through this gate that leads to eternal life. So, you know, somebody's wrong. Either Jesus was wrong, or this Gallup poll and the opinions of all these people surveyed are wrong. And I'll tell you what, I don't think Jesus is wrong. Jesus has the truth, which means that there are millions and millions of people who are deceived. They are going to sh be shocked when they wake up on the judgment day and are sentenced to everlasting hell. They'll be shocked. They don't think it's going to happen to them, but it will, according to the very words of Jesus Christ. This is probably the most unpopular doctrine in the Bible that I'm going to preach on today. In fact, I don't know what possessed me to decide to do this, <laughs> other than I wanted to be true to the text. I wanted to be true to tell you what it means. They shall not perish. That has meaning. There's something that that means, and we need to know what that means. Even though churches today have this doctrine in their creeds and confessions of faith, they never refer to it. They never talk about it. It's never preached on Sunday morning. In fact, three weeks ago, we had a visitor, and she said, you said something in that sermon today that I haven't heard, and I've been visiting churches week after week after week trying to find a church for the last year, and you said something that nobody else has ever said. And I said, well, what could I have said that's so out of the ordinary that you'd never hear it in a Christian church that you've been visiting week after week? She says, you said that every person in this room is going to an everlasting heaven or an everlasting hell. Nobody has mentioned hell in all the churches that I've ever visited. See, it's hush-hush. We don't talk about it. It's not politically correct. It's not Christianly correct, even to mention the doctrine of hell. It's disappeared from our preaching. I think perhaps one of the reasons that gospel preaching is so weak and insipid today in our American culture is because we have neglected to tell people what they're being saved from. People don't even know what they're being saved from. We say sin. Well, they think sin's not such a bad thing. But they don't tell them what the effects, the everlasting effects of sin will be. Turn on your Christian TV and tell me, is that preacher going to tell you what you're going to be saved from? No way. It's not going to happen. R.C. Sproul has recently said, we no longer believe in justification by faith. We believe in justification by death. Meaning, we assume that once you die, you're justified in the sight of God. And you say, well, he's really taking that too far. How many funerals have you gone to where this guy was an unbeliever or an agnostic or an atheist or a no good scoundrel? You know this guy's just a sinner. He never repented. And all of a sudden, everyone says, well, he's in a better place now. Nobody tells the truth at funerals. <laughs> it's just too, too heartrending to do that. I've been out on the streets with many of you talking to people about Christ, and I have heard probably, it's no exaggeration to say hundreds of times, people say, well, you know, this life right now is hell. And what they mean by that is this is the only hell people will ever experience. This is hell right now. You're going to have a rude awakening one day, those of you who believe that's true, because it's not true. It is not true. In John 3.16, the 
The scripture says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, what does it mean to not perish? What does that mean? Well, we find out from the next verse, verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. To perish is the opposite of being saved. To perish means you die unsaved. You die condemned. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. To perish means that you die unsaved, to perish means that you are condemned in the sight of Almighty God. And one final verse, the very last verse of this chapter, John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What does it mean to perish? It means that God's wrath, the wrath of an om omnipotent sovereign, remains on you and never goes away, never leaves you. You stand under that almighty wrath for all eternity. That's what it means to perish in the context of John chapter 3. Now, this morning, I'm just going to ask some questions and try to answer them from the Bible. Okay? If, if, if we want to know truth, folks, this is the only place to get it. It's, I can't, if I try to spout off my opinions, I'm sure to leave you, lead you astray. But if I can quote this, I know that I'm on safe ground. And probably two-thirds or more of my message today is just scripture. I'm just going to be reading to you what God says about this place. So there can be no mistake about it. So the first question I want to ask is simply this. What happens to an unbeliever when he or she dies? What happens? There are different positions on this. There have been a very small minority of believers in Christ who have held the position of universalism. Have you ever heard of that before, universalism? This is the position that if an unbeliever dies, or when they die, either at the moment of death, they're automatically taken to heaven, or they enter into hell for a period of time until their sins are purified and then they escape that place having repented, having been convinced to repent by the fires of hell and they escape and now make their way into heaven. Meaning that the death of Jesus Christ, according to this view, saves every person on the planet. Now it's only been held by a very tiny minority of people down through the ages and the reason is pretty clear, it's just not biblical. How, even though we would like to believe that everybody will end up in heaven at the end. Jesus and his apostles over and over again tell us that's not the case. That's not the truth. There have been some fairly well-known universalists. Origen, who was a theologian of the third century, was a universalist. As well as George MacDonald. Has anybody ever read any of his fiction books? He, was, he lived in the 1800s. Fairly well-known. You can pick them up at the, um, any Bible bookstore. George MacDonald was a universalist. William Barclay. Anybody ever heard of William Barclay? He wrote his commentary series, uh, Daily Bible Study Series. Uh, a fairly popular commentator. Well, William Barclay was a universalist. And there is a whole denomination devoted to this position. The Unitarian Universalist Denomination. 
although there's only a handful of churches, not very many, there's still some people who believe this. The second view is that of annihilationism. They say when an unbeliever dies, he is annihilated. Now, he may have to go to hell for a period of time, but when God sees that he, his punishment has met his crimes on earth, he is annihilated and he ceases to exist. So some annihilists say, annihilationists say, that when that unbeliever dies at that very moment, he just ceases to exist. Others say that he has to pay for his sins in hell for a period of time, and then God causes him to be utterly destroyed so he ceases to exist. This position is a little bit more popular than universalism, but it has always been held by the minority of Christians throughout church history. Um, some annihilationists that you might know if you've read any, I don't know how much of this stuff you read, but Clark Pinnock is one that holds this position. Anybody ever heard the name William Branham? He was a very, very famous Pentecostal preacher healing evangelist about 50, 60 years ago. William Brannan held to this position. John Stott. You folks have heard of him, I think, if you've done any reading. John Stott, a famous theologian from uh, England, is, is a, uh, an annihilationist. The Seventh-day Adventist denomination and the Jehovah's Witnesses hold to this particular doctrine of annihilationism. But moving on, let's talk about what I believe to be the biblical doctrine of hell. What happens to an unbeliever when they die? Well, the traditional view, and that held by the vast majority of Christians down through the history of the church, is that that person goes to a place of unending eternal suffering for sin, called hell. Now, is anybody in hell right now? Actually, no. Nobody is there right now. They're in a place called Hades. Hades is sort of the holding tank for hell. It's kind of like if someone kills somebody. They're arrested, they're put in jail until they're brought before the judge. When the judge sentences them, he puts them into prison for life. Right? So Hades is sort of like jail. Hell is like prison for life. It's a holding place. We learn about Hades in Luke chapter 16 when there was a rich man in Lazarus and the rich man dies and he goes to Hades. Now he's in torment in that place. He's in agony in these flames. He describes it himself. But later on we read in the book of Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. It exists now, and if you die outside of Christ now, you'll go to Hades. But at one point, you will be resurrected from the dead. You will stand before Jesus Christ to receive your sentence. He will be your judge. And if you have not had saving faith in Christ during your lifetime, if you die unconverted, you will be cast into this lake of fire which lasts forever. That's what happens to an unbeliever. So let me just give you a real short, simple definition of hell. Hell is the place of endless suffering for the impenitent. The word impenitent means those who have not repented. Hell is the place of endless suffering for the impenitent. The word occurs 13 times in our New Testament. 
11 of those 13 times, it comes from the lips of Jesus. You know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, our loving Savior. This is the one who spoke of it 85% of the times it occurs comes from the very lips of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus warned men to flee from the wrath to come. Jesus spoke about hell because he knew it was a reality. And he knew that every person in this world was going to spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. So let's go to our second question then. What is hell like? And we're going to spend quite a bit of time here. There are 12 different things I want to tell, tell you about what hell is like. Number one, it's a place. Hell is a place. In Acts 1.25, it says Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Well, we know that Judas died as an impenitent man. He died as an unbeliever. According to this scripture, he went to his own place. Well, that place can be also called hell. In Luke 16.28, now I'm going to read to you a scripture that has to do with Hades, but I believe if Hades was a place, then hell certainly is a place. And here in Luke 16, 28, the rich man is saying to Abraham, please send Lazarus so that to my five brothers that they will not also come to this place of torment. So Hades was a place of torment. And if Hades was a place, certainly hell is due. It makes sense to me that hell would be a place because heaven is also a place. John 14, 1, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Many dwelling places. So if heaven is a place, I see no reason why hell ought not be a place. Now, where is it? I don't know. And I don't think anybody knows. <laughs> but it's somewhere. It is a place and it is somewhere. And real people like you and me sitting here today in this room are going to end up in that place. Number two, it's a place of eternal torment. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's a place of torment. And notice it's a place of torment day and night forever and ever. There is no phrase in the Greek language that can, that can expound the eternity of something stronger than that statement. Day and night, forever and ever. This phrase occurs 20 times in the New Testament, 16 of those times that it refers to God. Let me give you a sample. Revelation 4.10. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. God lives forever and ever. The very same phrase is used of all those who end up in this lake of fire. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Try, try to grasp that. I, th I don't think we really can as mortals. We, do, we can't really enter into what it's like to go to a place without end forever and ever. But that is the case. As long as God exists as God, people will exist in hell. If God can cease to be God, people can escape hell. But I don't think God can ever cease to be God, nor can God ever cease to be. God is immortal. So hell is a place, it's a place of eternal torment. Number three, it's a place of punishment. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 46, these will go away into eternal 
punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. He contrasts eternal punishment with eternal life. It's very similar to when he talked about the two gates leading to destruction or life. And he says that both of them are called eternal. Eternal punishment and eternal life. So he uses the very same Greek word to describe heaven, eternal life, as he does to describe hell, eternal punishment. If you, you know, there's nobody writing books today that I know of that says, yeah, we go to heaven for a while, and then after a, a temporary period of time in heaven, God just destroys us and annihilates us and we cease to exist. I've never heard that doctrine, but we do have a doctrine that people go to hell and after a period of time, God just destroys them and they cease to exist. So the, the same duration of time, if you can call eternity time, that heaven undergoes, hell also undergoes, according to this passage. Number four, it's a place of wrath, a place of divine wrath. Revelation 14, verse 10 and 11, and this is, to me, the most graphic and uh, terrible and awesome description of hell in the Bible. Revelation 14, 10 and 11, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he'll be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. It's a place of wrath. He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Do you remember Jesus? On the night before he went to the cross, he was in agony and prayer, and he said, Father, remove this cup from me. What's he talking about? He's talking about that cup that unbelievers are going to have to drink. Jesus drank it. He experienced hell for all of you who would believe upon him. Commit your life to Him. Bow to Him as Lord and King. He experienced hell for you, but if you don't bow to Him as Lord and King and trust Him and walk with Him, then this must be your portion. To drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength. And notice, He says, the smoke of their torment. Why is there smoke rising from this place? Because people are on fire in this place. They're burning. It goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest. It never stops. You never get a moment of cessation of this torment and suffering. It just goes on and on and on. Number five, it's a place of destruction. Second Thessalonians 1.9 says, These will go, I'm sorry, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Now the annihilationist jumps on that word destruction, and he says, well, there you have it. People aren't going to suffer consciously in hell. They're going to be destroyed in hell. And it's eternal destruction because once they're destroyed, they will never have any being again, so that consequence of their sin goes on forever. Well, let's just think about it for a minute. I don't believe that argument holds water for this reason. The word there for destruction, the root Greek word, is also the same word that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 15 when he describes the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. 
Was that lost coin annihilated? Had it ceased to exist? Was the lost sheep annihilated? Was the lost son? No, they all still had a being. They were just ruined. They were lost. They were destroyed in that particular sense. If I took my car and pushed it off a 200-foot cliff and it crashed on the bottom of that ravine below, have I just annihilated my car? Does my car cease to exist? No, but it's destroyed, isn't it? You see, what, what God is talking about here is eternal ruin. It ceases to fulfill the function for which it was designed. And when a sinner ends up in hell, he has ceased to fulfill the function for which he was designed. God, all things being equal, longs that the sinner would repent. There is a will of God, uh, 1 Timothy 2.4. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There is part of the heart of God. And His offers are real and sincere when He says, Come to me and have life. But He dies. And that, that ability to have a loving, intimate, obedient relationship with His Creator is forever ruined. And that person is eternally destroyed. Number six, hell is a place of death. A place of death. Revelation 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. It's called death. See, in the Bible, death speaks of separation. Physical death speaks of the separation of the body and the soul. Eternal death speaks about the separation of the body and soul from God his gracious presence forever. Now, it does not mean that eternal death is not the eternal separation of that individual from God in every sense. Because back in Revelation 14, verses 9 to 11, it says that these people will be tormented in, in the presence of the Lamb and of the holy angels. So the Lamb, that refers to Jesus Christ. There is some sense in which Jesus is even present in hell, but it's not his gracious presence it's not His merciful presence. It is His holy, wrathful presence. So death. Death is separation. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Now there are a lot of people that say, Okay, hell, I know what that is. That's to enter into a Christless eternity. Have you ever heard preachers talk like that? If they're going to mention hell at all, it's a Christless eternity. Now, what kind of a, what kind of nonsense is this? Of course, it's Christless in the sense of Christ is never going to offer His benevolent and merciful presence to them anymore. But what sinner is afraid of a Christless eternity? That's what he wants. He doesn't. He hates Jesus anyway. He doesn't want Christ in his life. He wants a Christless eternity. So we tell the sinner, okay. You go on sinning, you're going to enter into a Christless eternity. We're just telling him to go on doing what you're doing. There are no real consequences to your sin, but there are. It's a place of death. Here it says, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. There's an old saying that goes like this, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. And what that means is this, born once, if you're only born physically and never experience a spiritual birth, you will experience two kinds of death, physical 
and everlasting death and hell. But if you're born twice, if you're born physically and then experience a spiritual birth, you are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're only going to die once. Your body will die, but your soul will never die. Your soul will be in the presence of Jesus Christ forever. Number seven, it's a place of weeping. A place of weeping. Matthew 8, verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. and that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There shall be weeping in that place. Now why would there be weeping in hell? Well, obviously, there may be weeping just because of the endless suffering, the pain that is endured, but I think it goes further than that. I think that it, this weeping is there because of the utter despair and the hopelessness that those people are feeling and experiencing. They know that the door has been shut, and that they know that that door can never be opened again, and that they are in this place for all eternity. And they can't get out. They can't escape. So there's weeping over their utter hopeless condition that will never change. It's also, number eight, a place of gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 42. And he will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now why are people going to gnash their teeth in hell? Over in Acts chapter 7, it says that when C Stephen had announced to that Sanhedrin that they were the ones that had crucified their Messiah, it says they gnashed their teeth at him in rage and they picked up stones to stone him. The gnashing of teeth in Acts chapter 7 has to do with rage and fury and anger. I believe that's why people are going to gnash their teeth in hell. They're going to gnash their teeth in anger against God who would put them in that place. We're going to talk about this a little bit later, but people never do repent in hell. That sinful nature that they die with is carried on with them for all eternity. And so in rage, they gnash against God. Number nine, it's a place where the worm does not die. Mark 9, 47 and 48. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Here it's a place where the worm doesn't die. Now, Jesus talks about hell. The, the word, Greek word behind hell is the word Gehenna. Gehenna was an actual place in Jerusalem when Jesus was walking the earth. It was also called the Valley of Hinnom. H-I-N-N-O-M. Hinnom. So Gehenna. Now what was Gehenna? Gehenna was Jerusalem's garbage dump. So if they had a diseased animal that had died, they would cast it over the side of this cliff into this valley where there were fires burning 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, constantly and endlessly burning. So it was the garbage dump. You toss your, your garbage into this place. If, if a criminal died, you just cast his body into Gehenna for it to be burned up. And in this place, there were worms or maggots feeding on those dead carcasses of animals or people endlessly. And so it was a fitting imagery for hell. It's a place where the worm doesn't die. Now, why do worms die? They die when their food source is depleted. They have nothing more to feed on, and so they die of starvation. 
Jesus says we're going to be like that garbage cast over the side of that cliff into Gehenna where the worm's going to feed on us forever because we're always going to, we're never going to cease to exist. The worm's just going to continue eating and gnawing and feeding away on the lost souls there. Number 10. Hell is a place where the fire is not quenched. We just read that in scripture from Mark 9, 47, 48. He talks there about, it's the place where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Now, hell is the most frequent image used in the Bible. I'm sorry, fire is the most frequent image used in the Bible for hell. Fire. It occurs over 30 times in describing this place. The, hell is called a lake of fire, the furnace of fire, an eternal fire, an unquenchable fire. And it's also called a fiery hell. You can just get your concordance out and look up those words and you'll find all these places in your Bible. And I want you, just for, this is going to be painful, but I want you to try to imagine with me for just a moment that you're handcuffed and you're taken to this great raging furnace, the door is opened, and someone casts you in. And then you hear that, that door slam and it's closed and it's locked from the outside and you beat upon that door and there's no way you can get out and you're stuck. What would it feel like? How long in your mind would it take you just to endure the next 60 seconds in that place? It might feel like an eternity. What about just 15 minutes? Just enduring 15 minutes in a place like that. Or, or a day. What would it be like to have to endure that for one solid day? If I understand what the Bible is teaching correctly, and I think I do, and most Christians throughout history agree with this, it's endless. Now, we don't really think about this very often. We kind of shut it out. Our minds can't take it. But it, sometimes we need to just think about it. This is where our family members are going without Christ. This is where our neighbors that we say hi to with a smile on our face every day, that's where they're going if they don't have Christ. This is where our good friends are that we pal around with and hang out with. That's where they're going if they don't have Christ. It's a place where the fire is not quenched. Number 11, it's a place of darkness. Jesus called it outer darkness. Matthew 8, 12, But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or Jude, verse 13, For whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It's called outer darkness. Black darkness. Why would Jesus refer to this as outer darkness? I believe it's because we are out from and away from every other person. We are alone forever. You know, one of the most serious punishments that can be given is that of solitary confinement. And in fact, some people, when they are subjected to solitary confinement, go crazy. This is like solitary confinement. You're alone. You have nobody to hang out with, to fellowship with, to cheer you, to comfort you. You're all alone in this place. Black darkness. People say, well, when hell won't be so bad, I'm just going to have a party with my friends down there. We're going to party it up. No, you're not. There are going to be no friends for you in hell. You're going to be cut off, alone, 
suffering endlessly. Number 12, finally, it's going to be a place of retribution. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The ESV calls it vengeance. Vengeance. It means a holy retaliation for sin. Romans 12, 19. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do you have trouble thinking about Jesus dealing out retribution? If you do, it's probably because you're focused only on his earthly ministry where he came into the world not to judge it or condemn it, but to save it. But he's coming the next time to judge it and to bring wrath upon it. So there is a description of what hell's like from the Bible. I think all I've done is just read the Bible and tried to explain, make it clear what the Bible says about hell. Okay, let's go on to our third question. What's it hell? What is hell for? What's its purpose? Its purpose is to bring sinners to justice. It's the place where God will exercise justice upon those who have sinned against him. If hell did not exist, people like Hitler and Stalin would get off scot-free. There's just something in our hearts that we, we can't live with that. Someone who was responsible for the death, the murder of millions of people. Yeah, sure, he can put a gun to his head like Hitler did and kill himself, but what, what crime is, or what punishment is that? He's getting off scot-free unless there is justice that God is going to mete out in the next life. And even I was reading, I was reading the life of Ted Bundy today on Wikipedia. If you want, if you want to read something really sick, read about that man. You know, he, he, he killed and sexually molested and did all kinds of horrible things with over at least 30 women uh, a generation ago. And now he was killed in the electric chair. He was executed, but that is, that's not enough punishment for someone who does something like that. What is hell for? 2 Peter 2.9 says, The Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. What is justice? Justice is the righteous execution of punishment upon wrongdoers. Well, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under the righteous execution of punishment for those wrongdoers. If there is no hell, there is no justice. Now, even in my fallenness, I can be outraged by the injustices I see in the world. How about you? You, you, read, you watch the news or you read it in the newspaper and you read what people are doing around the world. You know, the, the, the people that form ISIS and how they're just going around massacring people. It's unjust. Is there going to be no justice in this lifetime? Well, if there is not in this lifetime, be sure of this. There is justice in the life to come. There is. Romans 2.5 says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He says you're storing it up. It's like every time you sin and don't repent, you're storing it up. And your little hoard of sin is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like a creek that's flowing into a place that's been dammed 
And what happens? Year after year, that creek swells, doesn't it? And it turns into a lake, and it gets higher and higher and higher until finally it overflows the banks and it demolishes and wipes out anything in its wake as it rolls down that valley and crushes and extinguishes life. That's what the wrath of God is like. It's, it's building. If you're unrepentant, God's wrath is being stored up and it's going to be released by like a great dam that is just broken and it's going to overflow you one day. So that's what hell is for. Number, number four, what are the common objections to hell? What are the objections that people give? Number one, it's unjust. It's unjust. How could God justly punish a finite number of sins committed in a finite period of time with unending punishment? I mean, we only committed these sins for 70 or 80 years. How can God commit us to endless suffering for what we did in 70 or 80 years? That's the objection. But think about this. We do the very same thing in our judicial system all the time, and we think that it's just. Take that guy who pulls out his gun, and in a split second, he snuffs out somebody else's life in cold-blooded murder. We sentence that person to prison for the rest of his life. Now, it only took one second for him to commit the crime, but we put him in prison for maybe 60, 70 years. Is that unjust? No, not hardly. Also, the greater the worth and dignity of the person that we sin against determines the greatness of the crime. If we see a, a boy stomping on ants, just having fun, you know, walking around stomping on ants, we think, well, you know, I don't know if that's what he ought to be doing, but no big deal. Well, who cares about a few ants, right? But if he goes next door and steals the six-week-old little puppy of a neighbor and takes a knife out of the drawer and starts cutting off its head, then that starts to strike a little bit closer to home. What are you doing? Something's got to be done about this. But what if he steals the infant baby out of the crib next door and does the same thing with that? You see, the heinousness of the crime escalates with the worth and the dignity of the individual that has been sinned against. If I go and slap my dog, well, I shouldn't do that. But if I go up to the President of the United States and slap him, I'm going to be arrested. There is no greater being in all the universe than God, Jehovah Almighty. Sinners do not know this. You are not sinning against an ant. You're sinning against your Creator. Do you see, do you see why it is just for God to cast sinners who will not repent into an endless hell? It's because he's an infinitely great being. There is none like him. And then thirdly, the wicked in hell will continue to sin for all eternity. It's not just the 70 or 80 years that they've sinned in this lifetime. They go on sinning. They never stop sinning in hell. I don't know if you've ever realized that, but Revelation chapter 16, verses 9, 11, and 21 talks about suffering being poured out upon wicked people. And what does it say of them there? They did not repent. They would not repent, but they blasphemed God. Well, that's what people in hell are going to be doing. They will not repent. They continue to blaspheme God. How do I know that? Revelation 22, 11. This is talking about the eternal state. It says, let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. 
If you are cast into hell, you will continue to do wrong and you will continue to be filthy for all eternity. You will sin day after day after day and so God's punishment continues to be poured out upon you as you continue to sin, never ending because you never stop sinning. The third objection to hell. It's, I'm sorry, the second one. This is just the second objection. It's unloving. How could a loving God send people to hell forever? I don't think that's loving. Well, where did you get your opinion from? Did that originate with God or you? Where do we look if we want to find what truth is? We don't look to our logic, philosophies of men. We look to the revealed Word of God. Whenever you start to imagine that God is like you, Hopeless confusion will result. God is not like us. God is different. God is higher. God is greater. God is infinite in His being, in His attributes. So if you want to find out what loving is, don't start with your own opinion of what that is. Start with the revealed Word of God. Third objection. I just don't like this doctrine of hell. Well, do you think that matters, really? Do you think that's going to change anything? If you just say to God, I don't like that. There is no committee that's going to decide on this. God hasn't said, okay, let's take a vote whether we should have hell or not. God decides if there's going to be a hell. And none of us are going to change it. The Bible says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? God is the potter, you're the clay. God can do whatever he wants. And nobody can stop him. Nobody, nobody can stop God. Number five, who's going to go to hell? Who will go to hell? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. You see, your answer's right there. Whoever believes in Him. Whoever believes. Now, we talked about believe last week. Faith is comprised of knowledge, assent, and trust. We're not talking about the person who knows certain things and agrees they're true. There's a lot of religious folk who fit that description. We're talking about the person who trusts in the death of Jesus Christ to cover their sin. He has strapped Jesus on like a parachute and he's jumped out of that plane. He's trusting Jesus to save him. He's holding nothing back. He has committed his life to Jesus Christ. And if that faith is saving, it will be accompanied by a new birth. A new nature will be granted to him. New life. His life will be different. His heart will be different. Everything becomes new, becomes different. So I want to speak to you this morning. Has that happened to you? Have you been born again? Have you received a new nature? Have you been converted? Don't think that I'm talking to somebody else. I'm talking to each one of you. Apply this to yourself, not the guy next to you, not the, your mom, your dad. Your, who, this is for you. Are you converted? Does your life show it? If you were to stand before God on Judgment Day, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? If God plays your life before all the millions who have ever lived, What's it going to show? An unrepentant sinner or someone who bowed his knee to the Lord Jesus and served him 
with all of his heart and all of his soul. There is no middle ground here. Either we are sold out to Christ or we're sold out to sin. What is it of you? This is the one who will enter hell. It's that unconverted unbeliever who has never experienced the new birth. Now, let me draw out some application. The first point of application from this message is simply fear God. Folks, you, you've got to be either unconscious or dead if what I've said this morning won't cause you to fear God. God is to be feared. The Bible's full of exhort exhortations for us to fear God. From Genesis to Revelation, we're told to fear God. God is to be feared. Yes, He's to be loved and worshipped, but He's also to be feared as a great sovereign. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear Him. Sinner, awaken this morning. May the Holy Spirit awaken you to fear God. There is wrath to come. Number two, flee from the wrath to come. John the Baptist said to the Pharisees of his day, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The Bible says that we are all born children of wrath. Ephesians 2, I think it's verse 3 or so. We're born children of wrath, under the wrath of God. We've got to flee from the wrath to come. In the Old Testament, there were six cities that God designated as the cities of refuge. Now, if you had accidentally killed somebody, it wasn't premeditated, cold-blooded murder. You had done something and accidentally you had killed somebody. You could flee to one of these cities of refuge. And as long as you lived within the city walls, you were fine. The avenger of blood couldn't come into that place and kill you. You see, the avenger of blood would be a relative of the one that you had killed. And they felt that there were, it was their bounden duty to hunt down and to kill the one who had killed their relative. So as long as you fl fled and entered into this city of refuge, you were safe. He couldn't enter into that city to kill you. But if you left that city and exited the walls of that city, you were fair game. And if he killed you at that point, no reprisal would come to the one who had killed you. Jesus Christ is the city of refuge. And you've committed a crime against the most holy God. Many, many, many crimes that are serious and that cry out for your blood. And what you've got to do is run to that city of refuge and get into Christ. If you die outside of Christ, it's wrath. It's like the ark. Noah built this ark. There are eight people saved in judgment. All the people that were in the ark. Jesus is the ark. Get into Christ. Are you in Christ? Oh, I pray that God would cause this to burn in your soul. Make, may it come alive today. This isn't a fairy tale. I'm talking about something that's real. Do you believe it? Is there anybody here who believes that things I'm talking about are real? You're going to spend eternity in one of those two places. Flee from the wrath to come. Number three, make sure you are saved. Don't take it for granted that you attend church that you're a Christian. Make sure 
Has there been a new nature planted within your soul that gives you a love for Christ and a hatred for sin? Do you hate the things God hates and love the things God loves? That's a real good evidence that He's given you a new nature. Jesus said, Whoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's a description of a Christian. Someone who's denied himself, taken up his cross, the instrument of death, and followed after Jesus, come what may. Make sure you're saved. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So friend, I don't care if you're saying, Lord, Lord, today. If you're professing to be a Christian, that doesn't matter. We're going to find out what matters in just a second here. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that's how you know if you're saved. Do you continually, as a matter of habit, seek to do the will of your Father who's in heaven? Is it His will that you're concerned about? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I'm going to declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness is the evidence of a sinner. Doing the will of God habitually is an evidence of a saved man. Do you possess the evidence that God has saved your soul? True faith will result in that kind of a life. Consecration to Jesus Christ. How often do you think about God? You know, before I was saved, I hardly thought about God at all. Once God saved me, I think about Him constantly. Every day, many times every day. That's a good evidence. Do you meditate on God? Do, here's another one. Do you delight in the things that God delights in? Do you delight in opening up this book and letting God talk to you? Do you delight to get alone and talk to God in prayer? Do you find joy and pleasure in the meetings of the saints? You know, if, if you don't, Heaven is going to be hell to you. Because heaven is one ending church service where Jesus is worshipped forever. And if you can't find any delight in that now, you're going to find no delight in heaven. I hope some of these things will help you to decide once and for all whether you're converted or not. If there's doubt in your mind, seek God. Seek God. And don't stop seeking God until you know He's planted a regenerate heart within you. A new heart, new life, new man. It's got to be there. It's got to be there. Number four, deal ruthlessly with your sin. Deal ruthlessly with your sin. Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9. Jesus said, this is Jesus again, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. Now we read that and think, well, Jesus didn't really mean that. He's using hyperbole. Well, if he was, this has a meaning, right? This means something. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into hell. Jesus is using the doctrine of hell to enforce the idea of ruthless mortification of sin upon his people. Mortification of sin simply means that you kill sin in your life. Is that what you do with sin? Are you in the habit when God shows you sin of killing it? 
repenting of it, taking it to Christ, pleading for Him to help you deal with this sin, going to the Word of God and filling your mind with promises against the sin that you might not commit it again. You're serious about sin. A Christian is one who's serious. He doesn't just slough it off as no big deal. It grieves him. So deal ruthlessly with sin. And my friends, let me just say this. If you go on living in sin, according to the verse I just read, you are in danger of eternal hell. Right? Jesus said you've got to be willing to cut your hand off that's causing you to sin or gouge out your eye. That's how important this is. Number five, warn others of the punishment of hell. Warn other people. Luke chapter 16, verse 27 and 28, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man dies. He goes to Hades. He sees far off in the distance Father Abraham with Lazarus in his bosom. And he says to Father Abraham, I beg you, Father, that you send Lazarus to my father's house, for I've got five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. If that rich man could get out of hell, do you think that he'd warn his brothers himself? Folks, do you really believe in what the Bible says? Do you really believe that there is a hell? You say you do, but does your life reflect it? If you really believed in that, would you live any different than what you're living right now? I know I would. I believe in it, but sometimes I'm just kind of dead to it. I blank it out. This is revealed to us for a reason. God wants it to be uh, health-giving. He wants us to have a zeal for lost people. He wants us to warn others to flee from this place. Jude, verse 23, says, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Save them. Snatch them. They're on their way there. Grab them by the shirt collar and drag them out. Speak to them about their soul. How often are you in the habit of talking to someone else who doesn't know Jesus Christ about their soul? How often does that happen? Never? It's not a good sign. If hell is real, we ought to be talking to other people about their soul. And we ought not to be afraid to tell people that that's where they will end up if they won't repent. Now, we, we can say it with tears streaming down our eyes. And we can say it with deep, heartfelt compassion. But why withhold something that God has revealed that could be the instrument of awakening them to their danger? Whoever believes in him shall not perish. If you don't believe, you will perish. Warn others of the punishment of hell. Let's join in prayer. Father, I pray that your words would bear good fruit. Lord, I've sought to be honest. I've sought to be truthful. I pray, Lord, that you would take your word, because that's pretty much all we've done is just talked about what you said, and Lord, apply it powerfully. I pray, Lord, for those that might be unconverted in this place today. Lord, would you call them to repentance? Awaken them to their danger, Lord. 
cause there to be an alarm. May the unconverted be alarmed this morning. And may they run to Jesus Christ for safety and shelter. And Lord, at this time of the year, we're so mindful of the fact that you love this world so much that you gave your son, you sent him into this world as a savior. That he bore in his body our sins. He became our propitiation to turn away your holy, divine wrath. Oh, may we find our safety and shelter and glory in Jesus Christ today. May you make it so. Holy Spirit, move today. In Jesus' name, amen.